the PM and the pomp. Ditching deciles. Certainly been a blunt instrument. And government guns and gangs. Aren't you targeting the law-abiding gun owners? Kia ora, and welcome to One News Inside Parliament, a weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News. I'm Benedict Collins. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Jessica Much Mackay. All right, shall we have a quick round-up of our pits and our peaks for the week? Mikey, what was your peak? My peak is that I just returned earlier this week from Japan, where I was following the Prime Minister last week, and the peak, obviously, was the fact that I got to attend the All Blacks versus South Africa match uh, over there, which was friggin awesome it was cool we were we had nice seats right in the middle of the pitch we weren't with the prime minister we were of course with one news um and we had a few media seats so right there in the thick of it the stadium was packed out it was just it was just amazing it just topped off the trip for me so yeah and good to come away with the win and i really enjoyed mikey came back and was telling us she managed to sneak into the back of the all blacks press conference yes um, after the match and mikey was saying what um, uh, polite, uh, well-ordered press conference it is where journalists put up their hands for um, questions, not like the screaming matches. That no, have very, here very at different to here at yeah. Parliament, and I was just shocked. But yeah, that was my first <laughs> that sports party. Like a journalist sneak into a press conference. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, thinking yeah. I could have thrown a quick old question in there, yeah. but uh, I'm not au fait with the ways of the rugby. So no, it is a different culture. I cover them over <laughs> in Europe, and it is very much. It's it's very different. Talking of Europe, my um, peak also goes with with the Brexit stories that have been coming out, out. Over the last couple of days, there have been some some vein-popping emotional speeches coming out of the Parliament in the UK, and I've just found it really fun and fascinating to watch. So that has been my peak this week. And my peak, um, I think, would be Greta Thunberg's death stare at Donald Trump over at the United Nations, um, and I also thoroughly enjoyed uh, the, the speech that she gave there as well. Quite a, um, uh, you know, passioned, impassioned plea. Um, uh, yeah, thought it was fantastic. That death stare was gold, wasn't it? It, mm. it scared me yeah. in my seat back here in, in New your Zealand. soul. <laughs> yeah, and it, it did make me think too, because part of the Prime Minister's uh, Jacinda Ardern speech over there, she was talking about New Zealand becoming a um, you know, world-leading, sustainable producer of food. Um, and part of Greta Thunberg's speech was saying, look, a lot of the technologies that we're relying on, or, or that you know we're talking about saving the planet with, don't actually exist. Um, and so we had Jacinda saying that, and then I think the next day I was listening to the climate change minister talking about how. Um, Basically, we want to measure every farmer's emissions and come up with these climate plans per farm to figure out how they can reduce them. And then he says, "Oh, yeah, but the technologies—a lot of the technologies—we need to do this by 2025 don't actually actually exist yet." You know, so mm. it is—you know—people making these sort of promises but we don't actually have the solutions. And in keeping with the UN theme, that is my pit. Um, and it was Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, being called home early to go and deal with a bit of a firestorm back home. And it was the opening pictures uh, in our new Europe correspondent, Daniel Faitoa's story last night on the news, which really struck me. And there was uh, a lone shot of Boris getting off the plane there. And the opening words uh, from Daniel were, a lone leader, 
leader returns home to a political firestorm and you know that's obviously after um, Britain's highest court had ruled that he had misled the Queen in shutting down Parliament um, just so that he could silence debate over the Brexit exit uh, so yeah those pictures just pure gold anyone who lets their leader walk off the plane alone is not thinking about what that looks like from a media point of view. Um, mine was also international, but I'm going to have two peaks this week because I'm just such a cheery character this week. Um, I really, I did um, filled in for Q and A this week while Jack has been away and we did a panel discussion with Tim Grosser and Nyla Hari about um, the whole meeting with Donald Trump and I found that really interesting to hear the two contrasting points of view and and how passionately both sides felt about each of those so I really enjoyed that. Yeah and my um, pitch for the week I had a look at the census um, figures for occupations um, this week and they uh, have a little look at the media here. There were about 1,200 print journalists in the country, 219 radio journalists, 219 TV journalists. For uh, public relations professionals, there were 4,341. And public relations managers, 3,756. That's so, just um, depressing, isn't it? Yeah, so about 8,000 PR people. And we had about, what was it? about 2,000 journalists. Yeah. yeah. There was there was a separate category as well for like newspaper and periodical editors. There's about another 1,700 there, but not all of those would be news people. It's really interesting. Hmm. But talking of um, going to PR, which might actually segue us very nicely into this, um, for those with a keen eye will have noticed these um, toffee pops. Now, these were actually um, from Matt King. That young go-getter from Northland. <laughs> that Benedict bullied into um, him handing over to it to us. Um, they are the peanut chocolate toffee pops and his favourite biscuit and um, he donated them to us for podcast and we just think that it would, it would be a nice little series actually that MPs could just bring along their mm. favourite treats um, and hand them we'll over. We'll test them out. We'll test them out and it's a little bit telling about each MP as well that which one is their favourite. So yeah that's a weird, that's a weird favourite biscuit I must say the peanut chalk toffee pop. It's yeah. not your classic is it? It's I don't not think I've tried one before. Class. I don't so think I've tried one either. We can, so we can come back later in the podcast with our reviews. Yeah, so maybe Matt King is, on, is, is ahead of his time. Yes. Who knows? Now, Who knows? speaking of peanuts and nuts, it's always nuts when you're on an international trip. So let's nuts. take a look at my track from Japan. <laughs> a Japanese guard of honour for Jacinda Ardern. Security collaboration high on today's agenda as the two leaders got straight down to business. We agreed to promote security and defence cooperation through high-level exchange and joint training. It would see greater sharing of classified information with Japan, joining the likes of the US, Australia and Britain. We're facing increasing cybersecurity threats. Um, you'll have seen New Zealand acknowledging that we've experienced um, attacks from other state actors. This is about making sure that uh, we work together as a region. This is the Prime Minister's first official visit to Japan, which started a little less smoothly. This is an incredibly exciting time for New Zealand and its relationship with China. Uh, sorry, excuse me, with Japan. 
these things happen, but I do think it shows uh, that actually there is a bit of a strange position going on with China um, in that, you know, uh, with its Prime Minister Winston Peters, they're not sure about their position. Slip of the tongue aside, the Prime Minister was praised by her Japanese counterpart. During his time in office, Shinzo Abe has led sweeping economic policy change, including a big push for more women in the workforce, dubbed Womenomics. And today he was quick to celebrate Jacinda Ardern's personal success in the area. You've become a global role model for all women, especially for managing both parenting and prime ministership. Although Jacinda Ardern's stardom not obvious today on the streets of Tokyo. I went to New Zealand in January this year, but I don't know anything about the prime minister, I'm afraid. No, I've never heard of her. Official talks today also pledging greater commitment in the Pacific on climate change and a focus on denuclearization of North Korea. Japan and New Zealand are natural partners and we agree that there is much more that we can do together in the region but also globally. As for the Rugby World Cup, a message from both leaders, may the best team win. So that track there, obviously Jacinda Ardern's official bilateral meeting with uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Um, so pomp and ceremony aside, because obviously that's always a big part of it. We see the Guard of Honour and, you know, you've got hundreds of people sort of running around in the background making sure that the, the show and everything's well organised with military-style precision. Um, I thought in terms of the content of what they discussed, I was quite impressed with... Um, the number of issues that they did cover off. In their joint press statement following their official talk, Shinzo Abe pretty much went into it, um, you could see, with a clear list of all the things that he wanted um, to get New Zealand on side with. Japan on and he sort of went through them you know South and East China Sea tick um, you know uh, denuclearization of North Korea tick um, working together more closely in the Pacific Island tick and it, it was just a long list of things and I was like geez it's very Japanese too. and very ordered very really. ordered you know he was like we're going to share more classified information tick one after the other and then you got to our Prime Minister and I'm sorry I have to say but she opened with a comment um, thanking the Prime Minister uh, on his condolences to her dead cat the first time that they met. So after hearing from, you know, the Japanese Prime Minister going, tick, 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 North Korea, South and East China Seas, tick, 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 then you come to our Prime Minister and she opened with, thanks for your comments uh, consoling me on my dead cat the first time we met. That was awesome. I was just kind of like, ugh. Also slightly extraordinary ugh. that he brought that up, but, you know. No, she obviously. brought it up. No, but he did oh, he the first it, yeah. time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, even that he commented yeah. on the so first that, time. So this was obviously their first sort of official chit-chat. This was the Prime Minister's first um, uh, official visit to Japan. So in the more sort of relaxed environment, you sort of, yeah, you'd, you'd sort of talk about the rugby, talk about the weather, you know, great tourism there in New Zealand. Oh, I heard about your cat. But then I thought in these official bilateral, you know, statements and joint presses, to open with that, I was like, huh. It's not oh, the first right. time Paddles has been right. front and centre in <laughs> so, terms of the news. Yeah, right? really interesting yeah. Um, contrast there in the way that they went about it. I don't know too much whether they would have appreciated that. You know, you had about 30, sort of 30 to 50 Japanese journos standing there waiting <laughs> for Jacinda Ardern to say her thing after their leader just ticked off all these high-level issues and she mentions the dead cat and then I was like, OK. Yeah. All right. I Chase think what New was, Zealand. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Other that. than that, it, it, it did go well. Um, 
and and she was obviously received very warmly. Um, yeah. I think what was really interesting to see there, and we see it often when we go on these overseas trips, is that rugby diplomacy and and the the big things for us often, particularly in Asia, are um, pushing rugby, pushing tourism, and then um, getting some trade in there on the side. And I think you saw the balance of that um, with your coverage mm. over there. That you know we use our um, you know, burly rugby guys to get in there to to have some messages about hey, come to New Zealand, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think um, the prime minister's after two years is now reasonably experienced at that, and we saw that. And you know, she's in her element; she's on the world stage, um, and this is where she does well. Mm. Not in, in terms of being in her element, we noticed that a lot more when she then went on the following week to the US. Um, and Rebecca Wright obviously covered that all for us. Let's take a quick look at that. Jacinda Ardern returning to the United Nations, a very different leader. This year, bringing a message about the impact of terrorism on New Zealand and sharing a moment that touched her deeply. It was only days after the shooting, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a young boy gesture to me. I quickly crouched down next to him. He didn't say his name or even hello. He simply whispered, will I be safe now? Her answer then was yes, and today she challenged other world leaders to do more to combat hate. In our borderless and technologically connected world, commentary on race... Acts of discrimination based on religion, gender, sexuality or ethnicity, they are not neatly confined behind boundaries. They are felt globally. And she told the United Nations that combating extremism needs a coordinated global response. What happened in Christchurch, as well as being a profound tragedy, is also a complex and ongoing problem for the world. The Prime Minister pushing for a return to the ideals of multilateralism that the United Nations was founded on, but which President Trump had railed against just hours before. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. The future belongs to sovereign and independent nations who protect their citizens. But despite the deep gulf in their worldviews, the two leaders engaged again today unexpectedly over lunch. There was a general table conversation. Our Prime Minister at the top table raising a glass with both the President and the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. The UN Leaders Week obviously gives a chance for us to catch up both formally and informally. In between back-to-back -back bilaterals with Fiji, Pakistan, Iceland and others, it was a full day of diplomacy for Jacinda Ardern. And I think with the Prime Minister over there, she does have to justify every day that she's away from New Zealand. And she ticked off some pretty big names when she was over there. We had Boris Johnson, we had President Trump, we had the big tech bosses, um, and securing the uh, talk show host Stephen Colbert coming over to New Zealand and filming here. Those things are all big wins. And um, she packed in quite a lot in this week. But what in a, the US. Yeah, but what a fascinating um, sort of week to be over there as well. Not only all these issues going on, but then, you know, the beginnings of impeachment process mm, yeah. Democrats against Trump over the 
over his, um, you know, urging of Ukraine to investigate um, Biden, right? And so like, fascinating and this, to see the two stories. All bubbling, yeah, 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 yeah. All yeah. bubbling away at the same at the same time as mm. you know um, our prime minister's over there for all this. Yeah, yeah Rebecca had amazing. a very busy week yeah, this week. She did, yes. But I just yeah. love in that story how there's so the, here's the transcript, and you've got this side arguing. It, this and this side arguing this with exactly the same information. It's so fascinating. And the stakes are just so high because if the Democrats can't sort of um, get this impeachment over the line and, and, and get him sort of um, hung up on this one, then they can basically kiss next year's election goodbye because Trump will use that mm. and he will take that to his supporters and basically, you know, like he's been saying on Twitter, witch hunt, this is mm. a witch hunt. And he came out yesterday with the Ukraine Prime Minister, um, you know, in that joint press conference and he was very strong as well, um, Ukraine on saying no, no, no pressure here no mm. pressure. of course he's going to say that um, yeah, really interesting to see that transcript which seems so black and white in terms of hey it'd be really great if you could look into Biden and his son uh, really sort of um, you know, uh, a dodgy stuff going on there you know, could you please look into it and then have the White House still sort of claim black and blue that that's absolutely not and what the White it House release it as yeah. well, that was, was so interesting but I guess they do need to front foot that yeah. stuff and because love, it'll come out anyway. I love the description by one of the Democrats. I think of that phone call as like a classic yeah. um, mob shakedown um, yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. with just the implicit threat of, yeah. you know, hey, look, I know what you want, but now you've got to, and, you've got to help me first. And we all know with diplomacy, it is what is not said as much as what is said. It is tone. It is, um, you know, it, there's a lot that goes into those words are chosen very carefully um, usually not always um, and I do think it's just it's it's going to be fascinating watching it it's so exciting um, so I think Rebecca's definitely going to have a, a busy few weeks and few months ahead covering all of this. And in terms of um, Jacinda Ardern's meeting with Trump, I thought that, you know, you mentioned in your in your um, peaks um, the Tim Grosser and the Lila Hare um, discussion that you had with them on Q&A this week. I found that really interesting too, to hear from those those two sides. You had Tim Grosser, because sort of, one of the big issues going into that meeting was, is she going to raise climate change with Trump? You know, she sort of touted it as being um, this generation's nuclear moment. Is she going to bring it up, given that the US has pulled out of the Paris Agreement? Um, and so you had Tim Grosser saying, yeah, but it's only a 20-minute window, and we need a trade deal with the US. Um, that's what the focus should be. And then you've got Lila Hari saying, yes, but from a moral perspective, you can't go around sort of claiming this as our biggest issue and uh, you're a leader on it and then not bring it up with the guy in one of the big countries who aren't really perhaps seen to be doing enough on it. So it's good to see those contrasting views and you could agree with both sides because, you know, in that 20 minute window, you want to get you want to make it worthwhile. Are you wasting your breath talking to a guy who's obviously got his own agenda, his own issues within, within his own country? So you want to do what you can for New Zealand, and that is a trade deal. Um, and, you know, from the Prime Minister's comments, she obviously seemed to think that um, Donald Trump was very interested in progressing a trade deal with New Zealand, which is going to be a good thing. But he also, um, from her comments, seemed very interested in the details of our gun buyback yeah. following the um, mosque attack attacks in Christchurch. And I thought that was quite interesting that, you know, the President of the US would be sort of interested in that 
obviously given it's so hard for them to you know crack down on guns given their culture in the united states mm. um it, you know you wonder what you know what sort of things he was thinking in terms of what options they might have over there given they seem to have a mass shooting you know f- almost weekly yeah no, it was really interesting that he brought that up. But mm. should we have a look at a story that's a little bit closer to home this time? And this is your story on deciles. See you later. Goodbye, decile system. This principal delighted school deciles are being shown the door. I welcome the change, um, being a decile one school, and the stigma that goes with being a decile one. The education minister today sitting down with One News to explain the move. We've actually got better data now um, to use rather than just a very simplistic kind of average of the of the incomes of the community. And arguing school deciles, which ranks schools from one to ten based on local wealth are misunderstood and perverse. Parents who have been using decile rankings as an indicator of quality have really been duped. Decile rankings are not an indicator of quality and they never have been. We know that the decile system has certainly been a blunt instrument and had many flaws and stigmatised in many cases. Some parents with the ability to do so will actively avoid sending their children to low decile schools. The Minister's confident his new equity index system won't have the same stigmatising effect because it will be based on a much larger scale, say between 1 and 200, and it will be updated annually, unlike the decile system, which is based on the census. But National says he swiped their idea, minus their pledge. We previously made a commitment that no school would lose. It might mean phasing in funding changes so that we can be certain that you know we're not suddenly turning off the tap um, for schools who have come to rely on the funding that they get now. Right, so what, what we now then know is that the government is effectively announcing National's announcement two years late with less money. The new funding model will be in place within the next two years. Yeah, so it's almost universal um, agreement that deciles, um, schools deciles, uh, you know, are harmful and they've become you know, completely unhelpful and that people avoid, you know, schools because of them and they think they're a reflection on the educational quality of that school and they're not, right? They're they're a reflection upon the wealth of um, families living in that area. so it was interesting when um, the minister took us into his office and was explaining things, some of the stuff that I didn't have time to get into the track, but I think it's pretty interesting, is the new um, equity index system that they're going to replace deciles with. Um, some of the things they're going to be looking at, um, so they'll be looking at uh, the level of education of parents, of the parents of students at that school, uh, their interactions with the criminal justice system, they'll be looking at their time on, on benefits, um, as well as the general wealth of the area as well. So they're going to be taking a whole, uh, a lot more factors into account when they're trying to work out how much money to give schools in inequity funding. Um, and I did ask them, I said, well, you know, it sounds a little bit pervasive, right? Mm. You know, digging in and getting all this sort of Information upon parents, upon students in their school. And he said, hey, look, they, they never released that data. It's all done inside a black box. But they are trying to figure out, you know, which schools are going to have students that need extra help, um, you know, and, and more resources put in there. And it is important to note that um, decile funding and the equity index, it only actually amounts to about 2.9% of a school's overall funding. Yeah, so it's not actually. Yeah, it's not yeah. a huge amount. It, it all adds up, right? It would be a yeah. huge amount overall nationally, but per school, it's not. 
you know the be all and end all that equity funding. I think um, one of the one of the graves from your story talked about it as a blunt instrument, and I think that that's what most people agree that it is that it's not working perfectly at the moment. But I wonder if with this system, if you just make the scale bigger, it's just going to mean for parents that they say, "I oh, will just will just try and send our, our kids to these schools." Anyway, do you know what I mean? And I think that I, I'm not sure if if broadening it out and making it about education and about your interaction with the legal system, uh, sorry, with the justice system, will make a will make a difference to whether. I mean, parents want the best for their kids. It's a natural thing, and if they don't know enough about the system to know that that's probably not what they should be reading in on it. They, yeah, well, they still will. The the school principal that we had um, at the top of the story from Porua. Um, she was saying in, in the interview that she feels that parents in that area with the resources um, to do so will actively avoid sending their kids to their school, even though she was saying like they have very, very strong um, you know, educational outcomes. Like they're, they're doing a good job of educating the kids, but there's just this perception there that um, you should avoid the school. And, and I think these deciles do lead to um, you know, like white flight. Um, and she was saying of the 152 students, they had one European. Yeah. Mm. You know, like, which, yeah. And Our, um, my children's school is based in Seatoon um, of, of Wellington, and for, for non-Wellingtonians, Seatoon um, is quite a well-to-do area. But our school is a total immersion Māori school so um, they basically placed us there because that was an empty sort of lot at the time and um, and so we're there but a lot of the parents, so you know because it's in a wealthy area the decile is quite high but in terms of the number of families that are going there who are on sort of wealthy incomes and that sort of thing it wouldn't be at the same sort of proportion so right. that's where I can see oh yeah the decile system I've heard concerns about us being in that area and our decile fund being based on that. And saying that, really interesting to hear that it's actually only perhaps 3% of the total funding that is based on that decile rating mm. system. So I don't think many people know that because the narrative that we hear eh, mm. is like, you know, is that that must be a huge chunk of the funding yeah. that you get is based on the decile. So to hear that it's actually only 3% is very interesting. Um, the other interesting point is, are we now going to, when we enrol our children in schools, have to tick a box which says, have you ever received a benefit before? Because that's not really information that I've ever had to hand over enrolling the kids into a school. So how will they find that out? Will they just share information through ministries? Will the Ministry of mm. Social Development share that information with the Ministry of Education? Or will that sort of now be part of the enrolment form? Tick here if you've had sort of, you already tick if you've had criminal convictions because you need to get vetted if you're going on trips and so on. But in terms of the benefit staff and is that going to be part of the um, induction forms now? Or is there any checks and balances sharing? on that? If yeah. you say, yes, I've gone to university. Yes, I have a master's degree. Yeah. Does anyone to and that's when I think it gets really interesting. And um, I don't know if parents will really want to sort of give up that much level of info, private info, even if it's going to be held in a black box, you know, because schools are very small. People talk lots, and you know, <laughs> yeah. if, the, if, the, if the secretary or the receptionist or the office ladies know all of your sort of ins and outs, you know, who knows where that info could end up, people? Yeah, a little bit of, <laughs> little bit you of know, what gossip. it's like down on the schoolyard playground. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, should we leave that topic there and yep. switch? This is quite a hard one to segue to, so I'm just going to go on with a blunt segue. Maybe I should have gone from a blunt system to a blunt segue. Um, here is a slice of my interview I did with Stuart Nash earlier in the week. Aren't you targeting the law-abiding gun owners and the gangs and the criminals can just carry on? No, no, look, this is 1983 legislation. It has not been amended since then. We know the issues. This is about keeping our communities safe and ensuring that guns do not get so into the hands of the wrong people. So how? How are you going to do that? Because, I mean, the gun, if I'm, a, if I'm a gang member, I'm not going to sign up to the nice little register and hand over my details and track where my guns are. I can just carry on like Normal. And if you're a gang member, you probably won't get a license. And if you haven't got a license and we find you with a banned firearm, you're up for a massive fee because what we've done is we've increased the penalty substantially. How many guns do you know about and how many do you guess you don't mm. know about? Well, see, this is the great thing. We have absolutely no idea how many guns are out there because we not, do not have a register. At the moment, if the police recover guns, and they've recovered about 1,200 guns this year since the 1st of March, we have no idea where those guns have come from. But all you're going to find out is from the how many guns these law-abiding citizens have and and that's not going to stop something like the Christchurch attack is it because he didn't fit into that category no but, but, but it may well actually I mean you know there's a, there's a Royal Commission going on I don't want to talk about a specific person but the regime we are setting it up are setting up at the moment or proposing to set up will stop people who are unfit to own firearms from getting them another point that I wanted to raise with you that mm. that Brett Hudson mentioned was around these doctors visits mm. so if, if a member of the community goes to their GP and, mm. and has a firearms licence and the GP raises concerns about mm. their mm. mental health. Mm. Don't you get nervous that it's just going to shut down people talking about mental health, particularly in smaller rural mm. communities? No, look, not at all. What we've put in the legislation is the GP should consider notifying the police if the GP has concerns about the person who has a gun licence. It doesn't mean they have to, it means they consider notifying. If the GP actually believes there's a better way to deal with the situation, then they can suggest that course of action. So earlier on in the show, I interviewed um, national spokesperson Brett Hudson, and he basically laid out um, the 13 things that he wanted to see changed before they would support it. Now, the first part of the um, changes when they're banning semi-automatic uh, weapons they all got together on that and showed unity and I think we all saw that and I think that was something that was really important. Um, this is now the second tranche of that and it's into more of the nitty gritty stuff, the register, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where we're seeing more of this politics um, at play from both sides. Um, you've got National saying, no, we're not interested in supporting this until um, you do this, this and this. And the Minister saying, well, you know, we offered to work with you on this and you won't. And without any, you know, in reality, both of them could, could get together and, and thrash this out. And it is one of those big once in a generation opportunities to reform our gun laws. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the US and it's, yep, it's not as much of a dominant topic there. And most of us don't own guns and most of us um, haven't shot guns. I have, but most of us haven't. Um, I quite enjoy it actually, just quietly. Um, but I think that with it's one of those topics that um, National obviously feels like it can get traction on with a small group of people, and has obviously um, decided that it's you know it's important to say no, we're not going to support this and and go with it. I think it's interesting too that they're deciding not to support it, or they didn't support it. 
at first reading? Because normally what you'd do if you wanted improvements to be made to a bill is you'd support it at its first reading and then try and get those changes made through this you know, select committee process before it came back. Yet they're sort of opposing and wanting the changes to be made. Sort of an interesting way of doing it, I guess. You know, getting that airtime, voicing their opposition, mm, sending that public message. Mm. Mm. Brett Hudson um, uh, has put out a list of things, mm. right, that the National Party want to see um, uh, as part of the changes um, before they'll support it. Part of those um, include clearer and more flexible rules for clubs and also sporting ranges, and I think that is the sort of support base that they're really trying to tap in because it's those two um, areas that have been the loudest opponents, I guess, um, publicly. Um, to some of the government's reforms, um, just saying that you know they feel like they're being clamped down too hard on and, and so on. So I think you know when we talk about the Nats, have seen an opportunity here to politicise this a bit and sort of tap into um, some of those who aren't that happy. I think you'd probably angle more towards those sport um, sports clubs and also um, some of those gun clubs. And the crux of this whole debate between the two is that National's saying you're cracking down too much on um, law-abiding citizens um, who are already following the rules. And the government says, you know, we yes, they will be inconvenienced, but that's necessary for public safety and it will help make New Zealand safer by by targeting the gangs and um, the criminals as well. So that's the kind of... That's where... I do think that point uh, from from the Nats in terms of we need to we need to target the gangs and we need to target the criminals more. I mean, the guy who committed um, the March 15 attacks obviously was neither. Um, and so, uh, you, what you don't want to do is sort of narrow in too too much in on specific sort of gangs or, or criminals because actually this guy was not part of that that those two, either of those two groups and was more out here in the sort of general so you need to cast that net quite wide um, so that's probably my only sort of weariness I guess when, when they sort of keep throwing up that argument no we need to be looking over here well actually no we need to be looking across the board but I guess with that argument as well and yeah I, I totally see your point but he, the semi-automatics would have been banned and also um, the fact that co- because he was collecting an arsenal of weapons that if, if they had a register in place that would go ding 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 so there are things in place that with that specific case would have triggered things but you're right it's not like he was a member of, of a gang and it's not like mm. he had um, a huge criminal background so it's but it's, I, don't, I don't think it would have triggered anything because he wasn't collecting that much Oh, he had, a, he had a few though yeah, but people are allowed to, right? Yeah, but I guess if you have a few, like, let's say he collected them because he was only back from Australia for, what, a short period of time, 18 months or something like that, or a couple of years? Or was he was he there for a long time? I can't remember. But I guess if you're looking at that and someone suddenly in a one-year period buying eight or nine guns, that might trigger something. Yeah, so just just quickly, I was <coughs> chatting to someone... So I'm not particularly okay with the world of guns. I don't, you know, have have a lot to do with them. Um, but they were involved. Um, him and his wife were involved in pistol shooting, and uh, I think they also had AR-15s. And they go along to these clubs, and it's it's almost like you see on the movies with like the FBI training grounds and stuff, where like you know, bad guys pop out behind things, and and you have to go through these courses and shoot things, and they just love it, and it's been their sport for years. Um, and like they keep all their guns really safely, and I think with the pistol clubs you have to you have to attend so many times a year, and and there are all these other requirements, and they jump through every hoop they always have, and you know, and they're pretty 
pretty bitter about having to you know give up these weapons that are that are such a big part of their social lives as well and i guess that's what national you know and act are probably trying to tap into here as well as all those people who absolutely follow all the rules um <clears throat> but have to hand these weapons over because you know this one dickhead my argument would be, though, for you to be inconvenienced, for me oh, to be safer. Ab- absolutely, yeah. right? Like, I think you can look yeah. at the other way. Like, you know, yeah. someone without a gun has a bad day. They can go and punch some people or whatever before yeah. they get overpowered. Yeah. But once you have these types of weapons, it's possible for you to inflict enormous harm in yeah. a very, very quick yeah. period of time. Well, shall we do... Uh, we've re- been reviewing the tough topics. Shall we um, review the Matt King biscuits? What's the verdict? I actually like it more than I thought I yeah, would. Yeah, same. Not I totally too agree. too shabby. Yeah. So maybe we're not too quick to judge um, the national MP. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'm... Nuts yeah, about over, it? Over, <laughs> thank you, Mikey. I don't know if I'm overawed. Um, five out of ten for me. Oh, that's harsh. I'd go for Seven. Six. Meet you in the middle. Yeah. All right. Okay. First review's done. <laughs> anyway, guys, that was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering here on One News. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and it's available around this time each week on One News Now, and you can check us out on your favourite podcasting app. Yeah.